Hello and welcome to the Ways of Not Seeing podcast with me, David Bradford. We have a very special guest for you today. It's the TV scriptwriter, Annalisa Danella. Annalisa has worked on, among other shows, the Netflix smash hit Sex Education and the brilliant BBC series Ralph and Katie. Naturally, I wanted to find out a lot more about what working in TV is really like, the practicalities of doing the job, how she got into it, and how she's ended up working on these really massive shows. But it's a really wide-ranging conversation about disability representation within TV, that's both on the screen and in the writing rooms, breaking down stereotypes and why representation has been so poor for so long. We talk about what's changed, what changes have been made, and what work still needs to be done. And we talk about more personal matters. Like me, Annalisa has retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. We talk about growing up with sight loss, going clubbing when you can't see in the dark, awkwardness and the consolations of humour, and how improved accessibility benefits everyone. Anyway, here it is. I really love this chat, so I hope you enjoy it too. Hello, Annalisa Donella, and welcome to the Ways of Not Seeing podcast. Thank you for having me, David Bradford. I've been looking forward to this and we had to delay because I had the longest cold uh, known to humanity, but um, really, really good. Great to finally have you here. Well, we have chatted many times. We've just never recorded ourselves. Well, we have, but I don't know if we've ever done anything long form, have we? We've probably (laughs) chatted a few times on the phone, but... uh... It's never been structured by you before. Right. Yes, exactly. Let's say that. You've not put in preparation as far as I'm aware. No, whereas this time I've done some serious sleuthing. Oh, uh, God. (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. Not really. But yeah, there's plenty, plenty I'd like to talk about. I I approach these by being sort of roughly chronological, so with a sort of... um, vaguely desert island disc style i suppose so mm-hmm. the the first question would be to or request would be give us a sense of your growing up your background oh well it kind of wildly higgledy piggledy and strange and unusual background um so i was born in caracas venezuela wow. uh, to an italian father <laughs> English mother and uh, they were living there because my dad worked for the Italian Trade Commission and I spent the first five years of my life speaking Spanish and living in South America and then my dad moved to work for an Italian bank and they posted him to lots of different countries so I just got moved around all the time and I just thought that was normal and that's what every kid did so I lived in Japan when I was six and I went to um, a Catholic school run by Japanese nuns. Wow, okay. I just thought that was normal. The major kind of formative years were spent in Sydney, Australia, because okay. he got unbelievably lucky. And uh, we had a really amazing like eight to nine year stretch there. And so I, I formed my being there. And I feel, I do still feel weirdly like it's home even though I left and never went back. And that's where the strongest childhood memories are from. Definitely, from. Yeah. Okay. What in, is there anything in particular that sort of comes back to you when you think about those, those times? I just think it's, you know, you, you, you discover who you are, I think, when you're a teenager, you know, around 13, 14, 15. You kind mm-hmm. of, I think, I really believe that kids know who they are at that point. And the, their opinions are incredibly valid and all sorts of things. Like p- politically, you kind of get a sense yeah. of, who you want to be on the planet. And I did that kind of with my Aussie mates, um, listening to lots of Crowded House and Pet Shop Boys. Um, <laughs> and The Cure, who were massive. So really? the, Cure, the Cure were massive in Sydney. 
when I was growing up. And people right. were dressing up as, as goths in big, long leather coats um, in like 40 degree heat. Did you get into that scene yourself? I didn't. I uh, know <laughs> I didn't actually. I I stayed sort of parallel. And do you have any memories of Caracas and, and Japan then from earlier Not childhood? Not really, no. I'm a bit sad about that. And whenever I hear Spanish, um, I'm absolutely convinced that I can speak back. I can usually understand a fair bit of it. And I, I, okay. I'm i like, oh, yeah, I'll just open my mouth and speak back and just nothing. <laughs> it doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen. <laughs> I read elsewhere in another interview, you said um, you're never quite sure whether you're you're English, Italian or Australian. Do you still feel that? Do you still like that? Yeah, that, like that I can blend? be. A, and being an Italian, of course, I'm very, um, very prone to deciding which nationality I'm depending on what suits me best. Right. So, you know, I'm quite often Italian during the World Cup or the Euros. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think I can veer around. I mean, I. I moved here in 96 and I've never left and it is where I'm it's my country it's where I'm from I'm I am you know mm-hmm. it's my mother country definitely and I am I have no intention of ever living anywhere else but I think it has taken me a long time to feel like I'm British and I don't think I'll ever feel 100%. What's the is that something you've thought there, much there about? The, there, yeah there is the odd moment where I just go oh I cannot relate to what these people are saying um <laughs> Plenty of opportunities for that over recent years, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the class system, when I arrived here, because I hadn't grown up with it, I was aware of it and I sort of understand the basics of it. But I think it is a little bit different in Australia in that, yeah, of course, Australia has a class system and, and there's prejudice and snobbery and class privilege and all the rest, 100%. But there isn't quite that sense that you can't be friends. I remember when I was at uni, so there were sort of all these rules about who you couldn't, who people could and couldn't be friends with that I was just mystified by and because I had an Australian accent none of them applied to me I could just be friends with whoever I wanted to so it's like I get to decide who (laughs) I want to hang out with based on whether I like them or not yeah I think also self self self-deprecatory so the way that people like in Italy people just think it's completely totally fine to think your children are the most beautiful wonderful glorious beings on the planet whereas here you're really not allowed to do really um, yeah sometimes like if, mm. if someone says oh your child is so beautiful you're supposed to say oh you I'm sure yours is you should nicer. see them on a saturday morning they're right. horrible you know what i mean yeah yeah <laughs> you, you can't just go full-on pride mode and, yeah, uh, yeah yeah it no, surprises I, me that you that you say you wouldn't live anywhere else having lived lots of other places and had a taste for that well i think I think like many people, I wanted, you know, the one thing I think looking back at my life, although obviously it's kind of very fortuitous and beautiful to be able to live in lots of different places. I think I always really, really missed being from one place. And I Mm -hmm. think when I met people who'd grown up in a small community or from a place their whole life, I felt really envious. So of course, we all kind of try and do the opposite of what our parents do. So I kind of vowed that my children would always grow up in the place that they kind of came into the world. And what about Italian culture, your dad's sort of background, his family history and stuff? Is that something you've spent much time delving into or being preoccupied with? Oh, yeah. I lived in Italy for a year on my own when I was 18. And um, it was like an au pair, looked after some Italian kids and wandered around being a bit clueless. So, yeah, I love that side of of Mm. my 
heritage and my family. And I have the most wonderful, beautiful cousins who are such gorgeous people. Yeah, my Italian family are brilliant. They're really right. lovely and I don't see them enough. But yeah, I'm very proud to have that. As, um, yeah. you know, and I have a cool name. You do. You some, Sometimes with an apostrophe, I've noticed, and sometimes not. I, I'm trying to kill the apostrophe. Trying to kill it. Yeah, I've stopped using it and I've taken it off all my... I'm, there's one thing on my email that I can't seem to technically do which means that some of my emails still have the apostrophe i thought my dad was going to be really upset i thought he was going to i thought it was a really big deal so i thought getting rid of the apostrophe was going to be a massive drama but he was like that's fine um so i should have done it years ago because it really pisses me off and it's really difficult for forms and probably really ignorant of me not to know but what does it is it like in french does it mean of something yeah yeah it does but my name technically translates as really nothing it it sort of means Uh, okay I don't even know what of in the something of in the it means nothing. So you um, didn't feel like you were mourning the loss of the apostrophe. It was quite easy to just expunge. It was easy to expunge. It's also, I think, confused people in how to pronounce my name. I get called Dianella a lot. Right. And that 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 I hope I'm hoping that will stop. Okay, so you moved back from Australia to Britain in '96. How old were you then in '96? 18, 18. So that was that a wrench? Was that against your? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was such yeah. a wrench. My best friend drove me to the airport, and I didn't even know, but there's a carload of other friends behind, and they were like hanging out the windows, and they were playing <laughs> <laughs> Tina Turner. You're simply the best. Like over and over. <laughs> it was a very sort of. Um, it was That's a, surreal. A, it was a very surreal parting of ways and it was very, very sad and very major. What was it like? Was that quite a, an upheaval? I imagine it must have been. Well, it was university. So when you start okay. uni, everyone's in the same boat. So that really helped. And also, yeah, I think even if you come from a different country or whatever, you, you find your people quite quickly. I found some very amusing fag smoking kind of wry Riley humorous friends wearing purple flares and just thought these <laughs> people seem funny. Yeah. Where did you go to university? I went to Cambridge. Okay. Which and... to me from Australia was a bit like, I know Hogwarts wasn't a thing then, but it was like this extraordinary kind of beautiful, ye oldy worldy cows and the meadows kind of mists, yeah. mists and the spires yeah. kind of place. So that also really helped. <laughs> did it live up to that? Yeah, oh god, it's yeah. totally. I had honestly, I I don't think you ever really get used to beauty. Like, I think if there is a beautiful view out your window, I don't think you ever go, oh yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I just remember day in day out looking out of my college window, just going, wow, that is gorgeous. Yeah. What did you study? Philosophy. Oh wow. Okay. And had it been a dream for a while to to get to Cambridge? Or... No, <laughs> I wanted to go to Sydney Uni and do arts law and. Sydney Uni is one of the most fun places in the whole world. Right. Um, and that's where all my friends were going. And my mum, who is, my mum sort of reacted to being carted around the world by being more British than the British. You right. know, she used to get the Sunday Times delivered every Sunday and watch the bill. And she right. was just like, you are not staying in Australia. Because she, she knew in her waters that they were going to end up moving back to Europe quite soon because we've okay. never stayed anywhere as long as we stayed in Sydney and any, we were always living on the edge of when, when, when are we going to get the call, you know? Mm-hmm. And she was like, if my, my child goes to university, she will never, she, that will be it. So she was absolutely kind of, she sort of collared me and said, I've been to the British consulate and this is a UCAS form. Sit down. It's like, <laughs> my, my memory of it was actually like being chained to a desk by her. I mean, I'm sure that's not actually what happened, but 
I do remember her standing over me with a pen. You're going to fill in this. You're going to go to university in Great Britain. She made me fill in the form and I I had never, I mean, I knew I was good academically and I knew I had opinions and I, I loved writing really ballsy essays and mm-hmm. and I had um, and I had a bit of an obsession with postmodernism and post-structuralism and feminist art, um, as you figure out who you are when you're a teenager, and that yeah. was what I liked to do with my time while my friends were at the beach. And um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I kind of it didn't occur to me to apply to Oxford or Cambridge in a million years. And then this other girl in my school announced that she was applying to go to Cambridge, and I thought she's dumber than me. So if she's going to apply, then I'm. Well, <laughs> 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 it's that. Wow, that's no mean feat. Yeah, I think it was one of my ballsy post-structuralist yeah. feminist essays that got me. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what it was about? Uh, no, no, not really. <laughs> so it wasn't, it, it came from you, it wasn't that your mum was putting pressure on you that you had to do well enough. The motivation came from you, the drive to do well came yeah, from you. Yeah, it wasn't so much doing well, it was that I I just really, really loved writing. And so I remember when I got set these essays at school, I would sort of really eke them out because I just enjoyed them so much. Mm-hmm. So I would okay. save them up till Sunday. Wonderful, great, big, juicy history of art essay. And it would be my idea of a really good time. Really? And I would put all the snacks on my desk and I would just lock myself away with the computer and that's how I would spend my Sunday just because I loved it and I remember my friends used to get really angry at me they're like, we're all getting the bus and we're going to Bondi Beach and I'm like yeah but I'm doing this and they're like what's wrong with you do, do you remember <laughs> which writers or, or which texts sparked that off um well the, the history of art was a big one for me and um okay. no I, there was not a specific history of art writer I just had loads of books um big heavy ones and also my dad got me into that so my dad as well as having a day job he was a painter he is a painter he's a screen painter now stunning stunning artist and has always been an artist and has always created art all my life Mm -hmm. and um no matter where we lived no matter what we were doing he was always taking me to galleries or showing me pictures and he made it so incredibly entertaining um because my dad is an amazing raconteur Right, like he would okay. just turn anything into a funny story. So he used to take, I have very, very happy memories of being taken around these art galleries by my oh, dad. Wow. Okay. Um, telling me outlandish stories, most of which were not true. <laughs> he was just making them up. But, you know, I I look at all these seminal canonical, you yeah. know, like Suzanne and, and uh-huh. Dogan and all these amazing pictures and and just had all these stories in my head about them and yeah I just had such a such a love of it and none of the other kids in my class were particularly interested and they didn't give a shit because why would you it's just a picture from an impression but for me it was it was such a big deal so So, how come how how come philosophy and not how come you didn't uh, study art well so I was supposed to study art so the, all the other universities I had applied to do that. Um, okay. But at Cambridge, they have this rule where you they only let you study art if you do another subject first, presumably okay. because to check that you're smart enough or something. Right. Very odd. Uh, yeah. Um, so I just picked philosophy because I had recently read but like a really slim Bertrand Russell volume. Okay. 
um, that was like called Problems of Philosophy or something like that. And it just uh -huh. kind of outlined some basic metaphysics. And I was just like, oh, this is so cool. How do you know you're not a brain in a jar? How do I know I'm actually on this sofa? So I, that's why I chose it. And then I was studying it for the first year, intending to switch. And I loved it so much. I just never switched. Do you, do you remember what you ended up writing about, majoring on? Was, was there particular parts of philosophy that really captured you yeah I, I well I loved metaphysics there was a subject called logic we had this professor called Sir Smiley and he was ancient and he used to set an egg timer a, literally a plastic egg timer because otherwise he'd forget to stop wow um and and I remember he he passed out this this, this little logic book and he said this will sort the sheep from the goats <laughs> I remember thinking, oh shit! I'm going. Oh man, they're going to discover me. I'm going to get carted out of this university. I can't do logic. I'm a writer. I'm like, I write flowery essays. Oh shit! Yeah. Um, and it turned out to my genuine surprise, and still to this day, I still just think that's. It, I'm still marvel in wonder. But it turned out I was really good at logic. I really loved it. And I ended up loving it. And I, yeah, I did. That was one of the things I majored in at the end. And the other one right. I really loved was aesthetics. Okay. So the philosophy of art. Uh, and I really enjoyed Hegel. I got quite into Hegel. Um, you really he... went for the, the hard stuff. Well, I, yeah, I just quite liked it because I think he is quite, I mean, honestly, I have no memory of this stuff because I smoked too much weed at the end of my finals and <laughs> wiped my brain. And the other thing we have to thank for your philosophy background is your um, philosophy jokes over lockdown <laughs> because um, some, some of them were, were absolutely brilliant. Thank you. My my favourite, I've even written it down, my favourite being, I used to think I was a French structuralist linguist, but now I'm not so sure. Uh, well, that one I got from the internet. They weren't all mine. Oh, you should have claimed They it. weren't all mine. No, no, sorry. I, I got quite a few of them from the internet and then I ran out and then I had to write my own because the rule with the philosophy jokes was it didn't matter where they were from. I just had to do one a day and I can't remember how long I lasted. I think it was a couple of months, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a while. Do you remember when I then just basically just went, fuck this i'm done i can't do this too much well too soon in my my view i was i was, I was you know hang on everyone we should probably explain the punchline to that joke so it refers to a the structuralist philosopher doesn't it ferdinand de Saussure, which you know i wouldn't have known unless i'd been forced to read him yeah, at, there uh, at university of, there were lots of philosophers who had good names like foucault was quite a good one for jokes yeah you got you got some mileage out of foucault, foucault. Yeah, yeah i did yeah, yeah. well if we have a, another pandemic you're going to have to pick that back up. There yeah. aren't any more. There just aren't any more. I tried to move on to psychology jokes, but then I just, at that point, I, was, I really had given <laughs> up. I was getting, I was getting very angry at that point because okay. I had really bad asthma um, all through the beginning of pandemic, which was really not a great thing to be experiencing <laughs> when everyone's talking about coughing and breathing. No. And they, they put me on steroids and I was on a massive deadline for a script. And I literally wrote my script on steroids, which made the script's writing actually happen very, very quickly. Right. And actually, you know, in quite a furious kind of way. But the steroids were making me quite angry. <laughs> I had to sort of come off social media because I was a bit insane. Right. Well, that's, that's the that's what you're meant to be on social media. You, you were probably, you know, <laughs> picking up the, the zeitgeist perfectly there. OK, yeah, that was probably for the best. Yeah. Uh, um, We should rewind a little bit because I know that it, you were 14 when you got diagnosed with RP. Is that yes, right? Yes, in Australia. That happened, you were in Australia, in Australia yeah. at school. Yeah, in year eight, I guess. How, yeah, did, yeah. how did it how did it come about? So it came about because I was feeling like 
something wasn't quite right. I can't remember specifically what it was, but I do remember there were a few moments, like I remember um, playing volleyball in the dark with some friends or as it was getting dark. Mm-hmm. And you know that moment where you were just like, hang on a minute, is it just me? Yeah. <laughs> the answer is yes, it is just you. Um, I was like, how can, how can he, why is everyone still playing? Like, surely we have to stop now. I can't, it must have been playing on me. And I think my mum had noticed, I think I kept bumping into things like, like okay. low hanging branches. She noticed that I kept walking into low hanging branches and she mm-hmm. was a bit like, that's a bit unusual that you keep doing that mm-hmm. and I remember very very clearly being taken to an optician and the optician checking my eyes and saying to my mum I don't know what you guys are on about she's absolutely fine and mm-hmm. I think my mum and I walked away feeling very patronized and quite annoyed because my okay. mum was like I, think, I, I just think there's something wrong um and then I think eventually she figured it out I there wasn't the internet back then so I don't actually know how she figured out I really should ask her because I do remember her doing absolutely horrific dreaded finger tests I don't know how you feel about that test when they bring their finger towards your nose I don't know how you feel about it I literally I don't want to punch people when they do that especially if you're on medication for your (laughs) asthma at the time Um, I remember her doing that. Like, I don't think I like had that. Something. I think I was straight to the to the the box with the flashing lights. Oh, really? Were you? Mm. What did you end up going to a? So to... she she figured out it was periphery. Okay. By going, Annalisa, look at this thing. Can mm. you also see this? Can you also see that? And I was like, no, nah, no. Nah. Bloody good sleuthing from her. So then she took me to an ophthalmologist. But I do remember him sitting me down and having the conversation. And I remember just being so completely shocked. Because it was mm-hmm. like, hang on a minute, I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. that. Yeah. You know, um, and it was, God, when was that? That was in the 90s. That was like, when was I 14? 91? Okay. Yeah. So what was that like going into school and having to tell your classmates and teachers? I don't think I ever told my teachers. Okay. Um, because I, it, you know, my sight was so good in the, you know, the optometrist was like, she's fine. I didn't need glasses. I could read books. I could see the board. Um, the only issue was, I guess, sport and occasionally bumping into things and also not being any good in the dark. And those things don't, aren't that relevant generally at school. So I never really felt the need to tell them. I, my parents okay. might have told them. I don't know. And in and terms I... of my friends, I think I told my close friends that that was it. And then as we started going out in the dark, you know, going clubbing and stuff, um, then, then like, then that was need to know information sure and I don't even remember that being a thing like I don't actually specifically remember any conversations I just remember it was a given that there was a group of us and they would take turns like who's got Annalisa someone get Annalisa like I'll grab her it was just a thing okay (laughs) I was always looked after beautifully wow okay yeah so it didn't stop you didn't feel like you were restricted You, you had the full nightclubbing enjoying yourself yeah I couldn't see anything at all and and so we had just ridiculous systems because you know when you're on the dance floor the people would go there's there's a guy there's a guy coming towards you it's like what <laughs> what does he look like you can spray him is from it, is it acceptable yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah a quick yeah. a quick quick consensus yes exactly yeah Help. <laughs> it didn't certainly didn't stop me no no okay okay because I, I was diagnosed, I was 24, so when I'd gone through all of that, and I guess I couldn't probably see very well in doing those things, but somehow got through it without really 
realizing there was a problem but um yeah so, so when you were in clubs and mm. were, you, were you dimly aware that people could see a bit better I, than you oh absolutely I knew I yeah, was you knew absolutely hopeless okay okay but, but you were just like oh I've got this strange quirk I just yeah ah, and uh, yeah okay. I don't think it got me into any major problems I just <laughs> must have just seemed incredibly clumsy I guess yeah everyone just thinks you're on drugs or drunk yeah 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 so so how did it affect you during like teenage were you aware of it of your sight deteriorating relatively quickly or how did it sort of affect you through yeah I think the deterioration has always for me just been so incredibly slow I don't it was sort of imperceptible okay and I can remember points in my life where I was like oh yeah things changed because I suddenly couldn't do things that I used to be able to do but in those teenage years no nothing changed it was imperceptible Mm -hmm. um but I think it's been really interesting kind of now that I'm 45 and I live here and I do loads of activism and work with lots of disabled people in my industry and learned all about the social model of disability and I've done lots of thinking and looking back I think there were all sorts of horrifically toxic unconscious messages that I internalized um, that I'm sure affected me very deeply but they were all unconscious at the time and I, I I think I was very very good at just going, I'm not going to think about this. I don't want to know about this. This is all a bit upsetting. So I'm just going to, I think I, I did the whole denial part of grief for like 20 years mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then started actually processing it and dealing with it. And it was, I, I think a lot. this happens to a lot of people with our condition. If you don't need to process and deal with it, you don't, you only process and deal with it when you're forced to. Yeah. That's certainly how I feel. I don't really feel like I went through really anything at all at the time of diagnosis or maybe for a couple of years it's as you say it's when you confront circumstances and situations where you have to act differently to how you would ideally want to or just have to yeah have to behave differently choose yeah. a different option that that you then yeah have to go through that don't you but interesting what you're saying about sort of um the the, t- the times were quite different i guess because attitudes were much less enlightened Oh, my God. I mean, I didn't meet a single disabled person in my whole teenage years. There were no disabled kids at my school. Mm-hmm. Disabled people, as far as I was aware, were all shut away in homes or whatever. Like, there was no, no role model. Nowhere near a role model anywhere mm-hmm. in my life. Um, and, like, really hit home to me. I worked on a script some years ago about Goalball, about a Goalball club. Um, goalball being the kind of sport a bit like blind football where you tell yourself on the floor Um, and our team did very well in the Paralympics GB and it's a very cool sport very cool bloodthirsty incredible bonkers sport Um, and I and I was really taken by it and I wrote a script about a bunch of kids in a goalball club and I went and hung out with a bunch of 14 year old boys and girls who play in Winchester goalball club and I it just hit me so hard when I was there like if I had had that resource available to me, if I had been introduced to other visually impaired kids at that point in my life, mm-hmm. I would be a completely different person. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that you weren't was, I guess, partly because there were no portrayals in any media. Were visually impaired kids at special schools? Was, was I that... don't even know. Okay. I don't because there wasn't the internet. <laughs> As I say, it was Australia. Australia, David Mitchell once said this, and it is so true. Australia wears the comedian its racism. Or the writer. Yeah, the 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 um the comedian. And he uh-huh. just has a very perfect way of putting things sometimes. And he said of going to Australia once, he said Australians wear their racism like a comfortable old shoe. In the <laughs> right. you know, the quite overtly racist. 
Sydney is a very kind of incredibly fun kind of liberal Mardi Gras kind of place, but the homophobia mm-hmm. in the rest of the country is horrific. Really? So very overtly racist, homophobic society. Mm-hmm. I mean, ableism, it was just so... You know when something is just so overt, it doesn't even need... Comp- people don't even think it's a thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it couldn't have been more ableist. It's a very sport-oriented um, culture. You know, you have to be healthy, you have to be fit. Yeah, God, I mean, it was just... To be disabled was like so, just... So did that m- make you feel like you then had to keep your sight loss hidden? I think it must have done. Yeah. But I don't I don't feel like it was even conscious at the point. Okay. It was just sort of taking in this messaging. And I, I do remember the only kind of overt discussion. I mean, my eye doctor was kind of amazing and kind of unhelpful at the same time. I do remember him saying, oh, it, it's not that bad. Don't worry. You know, some people keep their vision until, you know, their middle age or their 40s. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've got a really nice patient who, um, you know, she's even married. She's even married and she's got kids, you know. So don't mm-hmm. worry. I was like, fuck. Seriously, like that's the bar? Like, yeah. oh, oh, you know, I even found someone who was willing to like <laughs> to marry them. Don't worry. Do you know what I mean? Like just he was, he, was, of, he was trying to be encouraging. He but... was trying to be encouraging, but Jesus, the messaging yeah. behind it. It's like, oh, yeah. you might have children one day. Right. So I think I must have taken that in and just thought, shit, you know, my future is gonna be awful like at what point do you think you're you're obviously now a very successful writer for for tv and including writing characters who are disabled visually impaired when do you think you realized that that was an important thing that wasn't being done and that you might like to at some point play a role in in doing that yeah i think i was always really really deeply pissed off about portrayal of disability on tv like always from even a young age because I mm-hmm. think the very few times you see it it's, it strikes you so deeply mm-hmm. you know there, there's that cartoon oh, there was something on the internet about the first time a black character was in Snoopy mm-hmm. and the little black kid was like running around the living room screaming and pointing at the tv that's me that's me you know and like I feel like that or I did the few times I felt I'd seen disability on television, I think the big, big thing was the Paralympics. Okay, in particular, the UK, the, the twenty twelve okay. UK Paralympics. Okay, where it was just sudden, the last leg started. Yeah. Um, and I remember that like that kind of it feels like an electricity, like a bolt going through you. Yeah. Like oh my god, this is being and and also it was done so well and so positively, certainly in in comedy. So now it's so much more out there. I don't get those electric shocks anymore. Is that true for you? Um no, I well, yes and no. I think for me that the Paralympic thing seems sort of double-edged in that it's great and it's obviously really positive, but it, there's also an underlying message that you can receive, I think that says you you will be portrayed and, and celebrated provided you are exceptional athletically. And if you're not, then probably you won't be. Th- that's always been a hesitation around the Paralympics. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in terms yeah. of other portrayals, just on, on TV and drama and anywhere else, I really can't think of any. I and mean, partly that could be just because I wasn't really paying attention. But yeah, I can't really think of many until much, much more recently anyway. What what yeah. what did what did you what's your what what did you see? 
Well, um, I think the A word was one that really, really stuck out, um, which is about a family with a little boy who's diagnosed with autism at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, really stuck out because it was done so beautifully. And I've since had the immense privilege of working with Peter Bowker. Mm-hmm. Um, the way he wrote the A word, he is not, he doesn't identify as disabled himself, but mm-hmm. it really felt because he has a lot of experience and he had family members. He was writing that from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to make those jokes and the tonally he absolutely doesn't flinch from the moments of real sadness but at the same time he's able to find so much joy and fun and comedy all the way through and I just don't think a someone who doesn't have that lived experience can write like that about a subject Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I think disability until that point really was predominantly something that was dealt with by people who weren't disabled and they're like oh I know we'll put a blind person in this or do you know what I mean and it yeah it, and, and also I think people have so much projected fear and anxiety around disability because of all the ableism and because mm-hmm. there's no representation that they will go oh god let's put a disabled person in it and then they write that person even if they decide they want to do it in a particular way they're still projecting their own shit all over this thing that they yeah. don't know anything about yeah they're not bothered to actually or if they do research it's let's find out about this sort of person it's not right. do i have friends and family who are this and who are also humans mm-hmm. um so yeah i think the a word was was one of those really beautiful examples of something done properly and well and it really really made a big deal anyway i i've been so privileged because i now work with peter and also cat pugsley who's the exec and Patrick Spence. And I always, always say to them, you have no idea, you know, how much that show meant to me. It was a huge inspiration because I was, I saw it and I was like, that's the kind of thing I want to make. And the the series you you have worked on or are working on is Ralph and Katie. Yeah, so that's with that team. That's with that team. Okay. So it's effectively a spin-off from the A-Words. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so how did that come about? How did you get that gig? Um, that gig, uh, there was a call out and we had to pitch ideas and I pitched an idea. Okay. Um, and that was just a complete joy from beginning to end. It's the series has been out now and, um, and it, it was very well received and yeah, it's it fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Was that the first program of that type that you, you worked on? Yes, okay. absolutely. And, and it was interesting because the two lead, uh, characters have Down syndrome mm-hmm. And of course, there was all lots of consultation with the various charities and 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 consultants. But the actors, Leon Harrop and Sarah Gordy, who played Ralph and Katie, played a part in the development in that we listened to interviews. We watched stuff of them talking about their lives, who they were, all sorts of material as we were kind of developing it and pete mm-hmm. knows them so pete's really good friends with leon and sarah okay very close to them he goes to the football with leon right okay so, so that that was kind of how that was done and i did feel a bit cautious going in thinking you know this isn't my lived experience i want to make so sure i'm not repeating the same kind mm-hmm. of dynamic of someone coming in and um but because the entire team were people with lived experience with disability we all kind of i think it just created this incredible atmosphere where we just had this shorthand with each other and that was just completely new to me because normally in my industry i'm the only disabled person in the room and i have to kind of deal with all what that brings with it what's so great about that series i think is the way that it's you know it takes on 
all the issues, doesn't it? It doesn't sort of treat disabled people, people with Down syndrome, like they're in a, a separate category of, of the way they live their, their lives with, with you know, particular concerns. They've got all the same concerns of, of everyone else and it just fearlessly takes all those things on, doesn't it? I know, right? Who knew? <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, sh- it should be damn obvious, but until it's <laughs> until it's depicted, it's it's not there, is it? Yeah, so, it's shocking. Yeah. It's truly shocking, isn't it? When you think about it. Yeah. What has there been in terms of sight sight loss betrayals? Do you think? Yeah, um, I I come across them here and there sometimes. Um, like I know there's a blind character in a Netflix show called You, and I know. I really loved this show called This Is Us. And mm. I had such a beautiful surprise when there was a blind character that showed up in that and he was just completely divine, gorgeous actor, okay. beautiful musician who played like a pop star, a blind pop star. I was right. like, oh my God, how cool. And then occasionally it's just done terribly. And I like, oh God, I probably shouldn't name names or I won't work. But, you know, various <laughs> continuing drama series or, yeah, well-known BBC series occasionally just get it horribly wrong. And I have been known to write the odd email you right. know, where a non-disabled yeah. actor, for example, plays a blind character. And then there's a in- little interview maybe in the Radio Times and they'll say something like, oh, it was wonderful. I spent a couple of hours with a very inspiring young woman who was utterly blind, but so full of life, you know, and it's like, no, yeah. no, 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 <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Don't Presumably your position on that is the same as mine. Is that just there's no excuse for it. it should never happen. Full no, stop. There's no excuse for it. What are you doing? And I think that a lot, literally in the last four years, there's been a huge shift in the industry. And now I think everyone is aware that you can't do that shit. The best practice now is brilliant. And I right. just don't think they'd get away with that anymore. But I mean, what, what about you? Are you aware of any particular examples? I don't watch that much television is the mm. truth. Um, yeah. I, I did when I was a bit younger. I think like what about the headline soaps? I mean, when I was much younger, I used to watch soaps, but have 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 any of those had? Yeah, they are, and they're starting to. And there's a beautiful young actress who I worked with who's um, visually impaired, and she's had a short stint on EastEnders recently. Okay. Um. So yeah, that's starting to happen. It sounds like things are changing quite rapidly, very recently within the past sort of two or three years. Good to know. Progress is finally being made. Um, I guess your your next big thing was sex education. Is that right? Yes. Which is a massive, massive show because I don't watch much TV. I was didn't really realise how big it is. It's like got what forty million viewers or something, hasn't it? Yeah, so, it's very um, global. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I have watched a, a couple now, and it is it, I think it's brilliant, isn't it? But oh, it's wonderful. I wish I could take because I've I've only worked on season four, so seasons one okay. to three. I really wish I could go, oh, yes. <laughs> it wasn't me. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. But I yeah, love yeah. it. I loved it. And I watched it at the time myself as a viewer and I absolutely loved it. So, yeah, I think it's brilliant. And Laurie Nunn, who is the lead writer, is an absolute genius. She's so, okay. so thoughtful. Um, I mean, she's very, very clever and funny, but she really tries to do things right. You know, she really makes an effort. And if she doesn't have an experience of something, she will bring someone in who does. Okay. And is it similar to Ralph and Katie in that you work on a particular episode or have you worked across a whole season or how does it work? So we did Writer's Room um, where we work across the whole season together okay. in a room and then mm-hmm. we each get given an episode. Right. Okay. And But yours is not has not been out yet? No. Okay. Season four has just wrapped. So I don't know when it's going to be out. 
how does it work with i'm interested a bit in the practicalities of, of script writing for tv like what are the lead times that you get given how long do you, do you go away and get you know x number of months to work it on? depends it completely depends on the show but with rough and katie and sex ed i think you're given four weeks for a first draft okay um, and um, but that's that's with an outline already established. So if you if you don't have an established outline, then it can take a quite a long time to get the outline down. Yeah. Then four weeks of first draft, and then if it's something that's definitely shooting, they have a set number of drafts that you get paid to write, and okay. um, and you have to deliver all those drafts, or you don't get paid. Um. So I think with Sex Ed, they expected four drafts, and um, with Sex Ed, it's really interesting. And then this is the case with lots and lots of shows is that the different drafts aren't, oh, this is set in stone, so can you change the way you wrote this, that, and the other? It's that you get given entirely new instructions. So you write a script about something happening to Eric, and then you get notes back going, we've completely changed what happens to Eric. So oh, wow. here's the new beats for Eric. You can't so, afford to be precious about where you Oh, God, no, him. you have to be able to throw every, even oh, my best joke was on that <laughs> bloody scene. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I... I, I my absolute, absolute most treasured sex jokes got completely thrown away no. <laughs> to write new ones. Yeah, because it was a casting because, you know, I was told that we were getting certain actors back to make a little cameo. So I wrote this whole thing about them and then they weren't available. So, And was it always TV writing that you most wanted to do? I know you were a documentary producer originally, I think. Yes. Is that, was it? Did you always have TV writing in mind that something you'd like to end up doing or how did that come about? Yeah, I think I did. I think that was always the end game. But it took me a really long time to get round to it. And mm -hmm. so I did the I my first job when I came out of uni was as a researcher for a documentary company. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, harking back to that first appointment with the ophthalmologist who sort of said, you know, maybe if you're lucky, mm -hmm. you might, you know, might one day like even be a housewife. I just thought, fuck, I've got to just get as much done as I can while I can still see. So I was ridiculously ambitious when I was in my 20s because I was like mm -hmm. I, my strategy was like I'm gonna get as established as I possibly can and then they can't throw me out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it was an absolute given that they would throw me out because Explicitly there were no so. well there were no other disabled people in the industry and like mm -hmm. how can you work in television documentaries if you can't see you know right. what I mean there was just there was no role model or example there I was just like they're gonna chuck me out when I lose my sight clearly or when they find out or whatever I don't know it was all just going on in my head so I was like I just have to get as much done as I can and so I started off as a researcher and kind of in five years I've worked my way up to assistant producer and then I was producing and I even produced and directed something for Channel 4 which had Bob Geldof in it and uh, just worked really really hard um and then I think I sort of had a bit of a like a massive breakdown <laughs> it never really turned into a breakdown but like I was on the cusp of it because I was exhausted and I was really like, I told my boss about my degenerative condition and the periphery situation. And they were just so sweet. My two bosses were just wonderful. And they were like, look, just let us know what we can do. But I was realizing that because I did a lot of traveling at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, I was realizing that that was actually getting too much. I was just exhausted. I pushed myself way too hard. And I was, I was just really stressed. And I also just couldn't see a future there. Um, yeah. But the thing I always loved, the thing about my job that I loved most by a million miles was always the writing. So I decided in my late 20s 
that what I was going to do was become a writer. I remember my boss, I said to him, look, I'm really sorry, I'm, I'd like to go part time and do an MA and or, or, or you can just fire me now. But that's kind of what I want to do. Okay. And he looked at me and said, well, you want to be a screenwriter? I said, yeah. And he said, this is the biggest mistake you'll ever make. This is the wow. biggest mistake of your life. And I remember thinking, fuck you. <laughs> I'm really pleased because like, it took me a while to get good TV work. But now that I have got good TV work, I kind of think, well, you were wrong, weren't you, mister? Was um, he coming at that from a sort of thinking he had wisdom of experience? Yeah, because they did. Precarious and, yeah, okay. it was too precarious. Because this particular company did drama as well. Okay. And he was like, you don't want that life. So then that was a whole other 10-year journey because I did the MA and then I just did bits of work here and there, but I couldn't get into telly. I just couldn't claw my way. It's a really closed shop. It's really mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. So I did radio. I did film. I spent ages writing the screenplay that kept getting bought and sold and and mm-hmm. not bought again and um and I did radio drama and that successfully though you're, you've had some you had some quite big successes with your radio drama didn't you I yeah one of them got nominated for an award that was quite exciting but it mm. was it was like a really good learning workshop because radio mm. is wonderful well I've worked with this incredible producer who's so talented and brilliant I was so lucky to work with her mm. a couple of times and she, she had access to incredible actors right. and so you get to work on these scripts and then suddenly you're in a room with these amazing actors and in radio the writer is really important you're you're, you're supposed to give notes you're supposed to get involved they do a read through and they turn to you and say what do you think that doesn't happen in telly okay so yeah so I got to actually see it you know as they say in theatre on its feet yeah I saw the cast list one of your dramas I think it was Alison Steadman in it. yes there was some great she was yeah, amazing yeah. I spent a day yeah. with her oh wow and she just couldn't she just she was just a she was a clown the whole from the moment <laughs> she walked in the room she just was a clown she and also she was playing a serious part Right. I didn't actually give her any comedy, but she, when she wasn't being recorded, she was dicking around, being a clown. The whole, she was just had us all in stitches the whole day. She was amazing. Yeah. So, how did the break into TV then ultimately come? So, I got into BBC Writers Room scheme for disabled writers. Okay. So it's it's stuff like that that really does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and off the back of that, there was a whole load of opportunities you could apply for, and I applied for them and got them all because at that point I actually did kind of have quite a lot of experience and skill. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could actually do those things. For me, it was absolutely perfect timing. I did a thing called The Break, which was a series of short films for BBC Three. Was that the first thing you had out? The The Break. The yes, your... that was the first okay. thing on TV. Yeah. I watched that the other night and it's, it just made me cry, actually. It's, um, oh, sorry. Just, just, <laughs> just absolutely brilliant. Just everyone everyone should watch that. But uh, oh, yeah. I'm glad you liked it because it probably spoke to you more than it would to most people. Well, I think, yeah, I don't know. I think it would, I think most people would, would be moved by it because it's just such an effective piece of drama, I think. Um, some of the lines were heartbreaking, I thought. Is it, I think the audience is addressed with the question, would you rather be seen as rude or disabled and you know that just cuts right to the heart of it yeah Um, yeah yeah. well I was very lucky because the actress is the actress who is visually impaired obviously mm -hmm. was so she she cried all through rehearsal wow okay which I loved I was like brilliant this is gonna be good (laughs) she's so smart and clever and switched on and incredible I love her to bits mm-hmm. um, and the director was also a disabled woman you know it was in good hands yeah no it's, and the line I could sort of tell it, it, it's so you and it made me sort of think about you and the chats that we'd already had it's uh 
where she's sort of facing up to this dilemma, which is basically telling her friends at university about her sight loss. She says, but I haven't written the jokes yet, which is just brilliant. And Yeah, yeah. so that, that line got me the job, I think, on Ralph and Katie, because Pete Bowker has been telling me now for quite a long time. He's like, I love that line. Really? Um, and yeah, so that line that line got me got me work <laughs> got me work. And had that line come directly from personal experience had you had you had that situation where you thought I don't know. oh gosh yes, yes yeah. I must have done it was yeah. a very personal piece but I don't really particularly remember you know writing that line but does, yeah does, Pete Pete, yeah. Pete pounced on that line too so it's interesting that 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 you did as well yeah if we f- focus in on what the line implies that if you've got a joke handy <laughs> everything's going to be all right or at least it's going to sort of ease the situation is that something that you've found there is that but also I think under that line is the idea that processing grief Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily know whether you've processed something until you can talk about it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so I kind of think oh yeah I've processed this or I've moved through this because I can now laugh about it and joke about it and talk about it right and you're now working on something for Channel Four called the brightness. Is is that? Yes. <laughs> I guess you probably can't say much about it. No, it's... I can't, and I'm not actually working on that right this minute. Okay, okay. I'm kind of working on a bunch of stuff, but the thing I'm working on right this minute is a um, it's a show for ITV, which hasn't been announced yet, so I can't tell you what it is. But it's a real life story of okay. a big kind of cultural event that happened. Um, in 2006 in this country and and it's something that I lived through and when I saw it on the news I was like that's going to make the most incredible drama and I've just been waiting for the drama about this event an amazing writer Jack Thorne basically approached me um last year and said oh I'm writing a drama about this event and I'd really like you to work on it with me and again like I screamed so loudly (laughs) (laughs) I know that's really obtuse and annoying. Yeah, I'm gonna I can't be say what it is. I'm so going sorry. through events of 2006 <laughs> to try and to try and guess it. Now, again, on the practicalities of script writing, are you only ever working on one thing at a time. I imagine you you must be, otherwise it would be just too much. But how does it work? Producers expect me to be writing like four things. At, Producers at phone me up when I'm in the middle of something else and go, "How's it going with this other thing?" Like, um, <laughs> not really. I personally really struggle to work on more than one thing at a time, but I, I kind of need to learn how to do it because it okay. is kind of essential for keeping work. It's not easy. Also, I'm aware of my limitations. Like I've got two children. Um, they exhaust me. And, you know, it is kind of, you know, everyday life is harder mm. when you're disabled in the sense that, you know, do you ever talk about spoons? Have you heard about spoon theory? No. So spoon theory is this idea that was... um coined by someone with a chronic illness years ago as a way of explaining to her friends that she doesn't always have the energy to do stuff Mm -hmm. so she said everyone at the beginning of the day has a certain number of spoons and if you don't have any health issues or whatever then you know getting up having a shower doing some work popping to the shops etc they use some spoons but at the end of the day you've usually got enough spoons left to go out and have a drink or whatever Mm -hmm. but if you have a chronic illness then just getting up and having a shower is going to use half your spoons. When you run out of spoons, you basically can't do anything anymore. And I think that, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I do think that I use more spoons just doing the basics, parenting, running around, living my life. Yeah, definitely. And I can't really imagine how 
much more relevant to you that must be because not having kids and working from home I mean we've spoken before about how lockdown was quite nice in some ways for us as as visually impaired people because your environment was controlled and you you weren't having to go out but being a parent you must be constantly in sort of new and unpredictable situations that you have to work out on your feet literally and metaphorically how to how to navigate and how to deal with them is and I guess as your kids get older there's more and more of those is there I, I imagine there's, yes but also less and less like the really really hard part of parenting is when you're on like um kamikaze watch you're stopping them from running in the road and stuff yeah that's the okay. worst thing. yeah <laughs> I mean, there's so much we could talk about, I guess, about parenthood and sight loss. But is, is there anything sort of surprised you along the way? You, I think I went into it thinking, oh, my God, I really hope I don't let them down. I, I really hope I'm not a bad parent because I can't see because, you know, the, the kind of things in my head of what a good parent does. Like, what does a good parent do? Well, they, they drive their kid around in the car. That was one of the things in my head that mm-hmm. I just felt like I felt so bad about myself that I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a really interesting thing to to realize that there are ways around all these things and they're not actually that important at all like right, the most important yeah. stuff is yeah. that you love them and that you're there for them and that they can talk to you and all of that stuff which I can do you yeah. don't need to be able to see to do any of them mm-hmm. and I guess two lovely things have sort of surprised me along the way one is that my kids are actually very very good at access they're fabulous at my little boy who's only nine Mm -hmm. you know if he wants to show me something it's just completely normal to him to to put it in my hand or go mommy it's here and and take my hand people are forever waving things in my face oh look at this i'm like where what oh god yeah he doesn't he's never really done that he never does that and he's so sweet and patient he's like mommy take put it in my hand can you see this now um which is just so lovely and um they're both very good at descriptive language. So, really? Okay. You know, when you, you know, when someone says that thing, that thing there, and you're like, where? Yeah. And yeah, like, yeah, there. Yeah, like, yeah. They don't do, they very rarely shout there at me. They I get say, annoyed. Oh, it's, it's annoying, isn't it, left. when someone tries to show you where something is because you just, oh, if I see it, I see it. If not, forget yeah. about it, really, because. Yeah. You're not going to enjoy the time it's going to take for it's you to. It's going to take a long time, but yeah. I'm going to get more and more stressed as yeah. you shout the word there at me. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, they will say oh, it's to the left of the kettle. It's like, okay, I can work with that. Yeah, left of the kettle, yeah, yeah. I can do, you know. Uh, just in terms of like the practicality of doing your job, how difficult with sight loss is that or how accessible, you know, are the the places and the people you're you're working yeah um, that's such a good question. Uh, so the actual writing, I, I do invert colour on my screen to ma- maximize the contrast mm-hmm. and then I use a um, word and final draft um, and I zoom stuff and um, and I work with a sharpie on a notepad because okay. I can't see like pen or pencil very easily on paper uh-huh. at all and I can't read print unless it's massive like 16 or something so when I'm given research materials and the job I'm doing at the moment there was a huge amount of research material they were so careful to give it all to me electronically Mm. so that I could zoom it on my own screen and anything they could find on audio they gave me on audio because it's so much easier so it's the getting around that's hard because you're required to show up at some location for a meeting in a completely alien space you've never been to before Mm -hmm. and quite often in my job you're sort of having to perform you're having to pitch Mm -hmm. I call it tap dancing do a little tap dance make them (laughs) give you the job and um, it's quite hard to do that if you are quite stressed because you've might had to get over. the tube to some right. place and you, there are, you don't really understand where the stairs are. And mm-hmm. I did put myself through that for a bit pre-COVID. 
And I found it really exhausting. And I remember talking to my agent and just saying, I really, I had, there must be an elegant solution to this. And my elegant solution was to find a place um, like a club, like BAFTA or somewhere mm-hmm. and um, say to people, let's meet there and just insist that people meet me there. I, I kind of refuse to be defeated by things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, then then COVID happened and then all the generals just moved to Zoom and the problem literally disappeared. I- um, and, and it turned out to be amazing for all the writers who have to live out, who live outside of London and have to get bloody train and pay the fare for having a cup of coffee in some office in Clerkenwell. They were all like, fuck that, we're not doing that again. But the other thing is that I have a grant with Access to Work. Do you have one of them? No. T- tell us tell us what it is. Um, so Access to Work is from the Department of Work and Pensions, and it's a fund given to disabled people to allow them to work. So normally it gets paid to your employer so that they need to make adaptations or buy specialist equipment or whatever the cost isn't on the employer and the cost isn't on you as the employee. The cost mm-hmm. goes is from the DWP. It's an amazing idea, a brilliant scheme. It's been running, you know, with, with some success. But for, as a freelancer, what I have is I have two pots of money that are granted to me every year. And that's based on my giving them all the information about what I earn and what my work is and what mm-hmm. my needs are. And so the first pot of money is for cabs. So now if I have meetings in town, or I was doing a bit of stand up for a while. And when I used to do that, as well. I had to be in places in town. Instead of having to kind of wrestle my way there, I can get a taxi and um, I have a budget. And then the other fund is for an access worker. So there are certain situations where I really benefit from having an access worker, which is like a a guide human instead of a guide dog. And that would be like, if I'm traveling, like if I have to go to Manchester overnight and do some meetings there, or if it's like a really difficult networking event, it's like, you know, in the nightmare, like networking in some bar in the dark. Like, I'm not going to show up to that on my own. Okay. Um, there's no point. But these things are really important. You need them for work to get work. So I will use an access worker for that sort of thing. Or if I go into town and go to lots of meetings in town, I might say, you know what, I'm just going to bring an access worker for the day and they'll help me get around. Okay. Um, and the beauty of that fund, again, is that you can choose whoever you like to be your access worker. I cho- I use my brother, right. who is brilliant. It's £15 an hour. They right. then invoice me. I then pay them. And then I then bill it back to the Access to Work fund. So at the end of every month, in theory, I bill back access worker hours and taxi hours. Um, you mentioned your stand-up, Annalisa, which um, I wanted that to That was a about. short-lived fun thing that I did that I really enjoyed. Really? But it involved okay. going to dark rooms above pubs. You know, the most inaccessible thing. You would go, how the say. hell? How the hell? But it's because I had an access worker, that's how. And and right, Rachel okay. used to really enjoy it. She okay. used to just sit in the front drinking gin. And then when I finished, <laughs> she'd come and grab me. And it was just really fun. We actually had a really good time together. Because yeah. I was going to ask you how it squared with, um, I read another quote from you, which I absolutely loved. I think that the question was, when were you most terrified in your life? And you said, I am visually impaired. My whole life is a scary experience, of which... <laughs> you know is 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 Did you relate? <laughs> absolutely right i've never heard anyone say it quite so um you know i don't know quite quite so directly and bluntly but i thought yeah very very much identified with that but i thought okay that's yeah life is quite scary but stand, stand up but time. stand up doing standing up in front of a crowd and well, trying that's a piece of piss compared be. to just like trying to cross the road <laughs> right it's not life yeah you're not about to get mown down yeah what was it like did you enjoy it oh I loved it I loved it because I'm a writer so I wasn't that scared of it because I had the material written down like you're not gonna if you stand up in front of people and you don't know what you're gonna say then of course that's terrifying yeah but I had a you know I had it all 
there I had a script and it was it was really useful for me because I had I had all this experience writing jokes but not that much experience actually getting any feedback and the thing right. about stand-up is you get direct feedback and it's merciless yeah so it either works or it doesn't and the stakes are very high <laughs> if nobody laughs that's yeah. so awful so it was really fun and I think also it was a, quite a good thing for me personally because my kids got a bit older at that point and I was just able to just go out and do something you know that that was sort of quite unlikely for a visually impaired yeah. mum. <laughs> yeah. Well, if ever that you 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 do it again, I, I demand to know. Well, where I'll and tell when, you. I'll tell you. I'll, the, the most. I'll be there. Yeah. The most amazing one was actually um, for an amazing charity called Tourette's Hero. Okay. Run by an incredible performer called Jess Tom, and um, it was for one of her shows, and she she invited me on to with a whole other load of actual proper comedians, and I had I think I was given twenty minutes. I had to write twenty minute um set, which was really fun, and the and it was a completely disabled audience, or very largely disabled audience, and most of them had Tourette syndrome, and Jess had Tourette syndrome herself, so. I said to Jess, how do I handle if people shout random stuff at me? And so she sort of talked me through, like, it's fine to interact with it, but, you know, obviously never make fun of it. And so you're being involuntarily heckled the whole time in the most absurd fashion (laughs) you can possibly imagine. And I really do think that was one of the greatest nights of my life, um, that gig. And I would do that again in a heartbeat because it was just... It was so wonderful. And I had non-disabled comedian friends who came to see me and they said that was the best gig we've ever been to because the wow. atmosphere in the room was it yeah. was just so inclusive. It was so inclusive. You, you did a radio show a few years ago. Annalisa is awkward about awkwardness. Yes, that's um, how I met Jess because okay. she was in that. Yeah, that's what what reminded me. But in that you talk about how the hardest part of sight loss by far, I think you say, is is dealing with the emotions of other people, other people's responses yeah that was 2019 is that do do you still have the same view on that oh god totally don't you wouldn't you say the same thing yeah I guess so it's quite complex it's quite a complex idea I guess isn't it because a lot of that is to do with fear so it's not necessarily people's responses but what you fear their responses or their thoughts might be but I guess you included that in the in that notion no I think that's a really good point you're not only dealing with yeah actual stuff you're dealing with fear of potential stuff you also spoke on that documentary about the problem of being grabbed for example when you're at crossings if you've got your that, yeah I mean in fairness that has happened to me incredibly rarely I think okay. it happens much more often to other people like I quite often see on blind twitter constantly people are having that problem it's happened okay. to me very very rarely but it's so it's so it's such a violation when it does happen that it really sticks with you yeah, I, I was slightly unsure about the psychologist's advice on on the documentary. Yeah, I, said, I was too. Yeah. So he said, <laughs> perhaps you you could reframe your response to say, yeah, no, I'm terribly off. sorry. For, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry thought... for picking you up on this, but perhaps you might not grab me. And yeah. I thought, mm, really? Yeah, really? So I wanted to ask a bit more about your work in TV and particularly your notion about being the first penguin. The point you were making was the sense of responsibility from being one of the first people writing about these topics yeah, and that you've got to get it right or feeling that that's quite a weight on you. It is, it is. And it's terrible because, you know, there is this sort of shorthand where it's, oh, I'll get someone disabled and then ask them. 
Um, and I guess my rule of thumb is I just kind of, whenever I'm trying to kind of speak for my experience or the experience of other people in my community, I just think of how I feel when I watch something done very badly about my experience mm-hmm. and how shit that feeling is and how angry and annoyed it makes me. Like, you know, the kind of horrible mawkish, oh, it's a blind person, oh, it's so tragic, all the kind of it's like a it's such a trope in horror isn't it and she's yeah. about to be murdered and then also inspiration porn as well right. you know what that term means Explain don't ever it. google inspiration porn no okay <laughs> not at work anyway <laughs> so inspiration porn being this idea of using the word inspiring oh you're so inspiring oh it's so inspiring a lot of disabled people can't bear that word because it's this idea that you're inspiring for just like smiling and getting up in the morning it's something that came up in episode one, when it, which was with Chris Goodwin. He's a marathon runner. And he said people constantly coming up to him and saying, you're inspiring, Chris. And he says every time he just bluntly says back to them, oh, right, what did I inspire you to do? <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. And it doesn't feel good. So so I guess what I'm saying is I just, whenever you're put in that situation where you're asked to sort of be like a voice box for something, is just to remember that what that feels like and really, really make sure that what you do is never going to make anyone feel like that. And do you think sort of talked quite a bit about how things are much better now in terms of getting disabled actors and disabled writers you know these things are now changing quite quickly but it feels to me like there's still a really long way to go would you agree yes absolutely there's a long way to go there's this glorious utopia yeah on the horizon (laughs) but the the change that has happened recently is on account of an incredible organization called dank or they're also known as triple c but they are right. amazing. They won a BAFTA last year for their work. And they have just gone around inspiring change by setting up these massive meetings and networking situations. And they, they're all solution focused and they, okay. they're, incredi- they're ac- incredible actors. Most of them are disabled actors and they have done some incredible work. And then a couple of years ago, Jack Thorne, who has written a huge amount of television, he's a behemoth. And a disabled person or was he had he had a condition when he was younger he gave a lecture at the edinburgh television festival called the mctaggart lecture where a seminal person gives it so it was emily maitlis last year and it was jack the year before and it was michaela cole the year before right and jack just gave this rousing speech about what the fuck is this industry doing for disabled people it was extraordinary and that kind of rippled massively through the industry. And then Netflix and BBC suddenly announced they were setting up a fund for disabled creatives and all sorts of stuff happened off the back of that. But oh, great. Okay. on a practical level, Jack set up this group called Underlying Health Conditions. And this is like a steering group with amazing people involved. Um, and it's about like, what can we actually do on a practical level to make this industry more accessible? And so um, access coordination has become a new thing. And the idea is that there's an access coordinator on every set in every project. And it's not for this one disabled person or these two disabled people who come on board to work on the show. It's for every single person. Because if every single person, when they start the job, it has a meeting with the access coordinator who says, what can we do? What are your needs? How can we be flexible to you? What are your needs? Then all sorts of stuff comes out because everyone has some sort of access need. Yeah, and a great example of how accessibility does help everyone. Yeah. I wanted to ask just a little bit um, about what your vision is like. This question I like to ask everyone with RP, um, because mine is so bizarrely variable. Mm. Um, I can have one day where I'm almost 
thinking what's the problem here you know I'm absolutely fine I don't need a cane I, <laughs> you know I can run down this if the light is I think it's mainly a light thing I think it's partly yeah. a tiredness thing yes yes and then the next day bright sunshine or something which isn't good with my my vision no yeah. and that, that's you basically completely described my vision okay. okay in fact today I had to take my son somewhere and we were a bit late and I was like Jesse, you're making me late. And then we got outside and I was making him late because he rushed off. And I was like, oh, I can't actually wear. I was like, because right. the light was just right in my face. Yeah. But also, don't you find that thing of moving from indoors to outdoors or outdoors to indoors, the, the change in the light always completely screws with me for the first five minutes anyway. And you would think that I would know that and remember that every single time I leave the house. But I saw, I, I'm always surprised by it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Especially if it's bright outside mm, mm. and yeah bright into a into a dark dim restaurant or something it's a nightmare isn't it yeah because yeah you literally yeah. can't see anything at all yeah and it, as you yeah. say it takes quite a long time for the adaptation to to happen yeah and sometimes it might not even be if it's really dark there is no adaptation but it's just more that your brain catches up like you've figured out where the room is and where people are and where your drink is and so your brain has told you and so you're you know it's like the little visual picture the little visual map has sort of set itself and then you feel like you can see even though you maybe yeah. can't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think my vision is pretty abysmal, actually. Okay. Probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I have any periphery. I mean, I think it, I've got a tiny little bit in the middle. I just think I use it. Very well. I'm so used to using it. Yeah. You know, but it is that thing of any any kind of new environment, I kind of get a surprise. I'm like, oh, God, oh, I can't see. And your so, the, yeah. the the missing vision is it? Mine's really chaotic, like lots of flashing light, lots of crazy white noise, as I call it, like white noise on a TV screen, stuff going on, which makes it really difficult to distinguish sometimes what what I can and can't see. And sometimes I will imagine something's leapt out in front of me, and you know, we're not not quite some not quite a hallucination, but just a crazy chaotic vision that's quite hard to interpret sometimes. Is yours? Do you, do you get that? Oh no, not. Not really. I wouldn't say that for me, actually. Okay. Okay. What's your experience? What I can't see, I can't see. Like, I think the bits that's missing are just missing. Are they black? What, what yeah, do they look... I think just black. Oh, wow. Okay. That's so different to mine. Okay. I guess the final question I wanted, you said somewhere, another piece of research, I'm not quite sure where I got it from, but how visually impaired people are born problem solvers, which I really loved mm. because we have to learn how to deal with lots of stuff. I just really like that we idea. And I think we deduce things on a subliminal level all the time with our powers of deduction because it's like oh well I can sort of like we're not even aware that we might be smelling something or hearing something and that that's leading us to understand that something's in a place and right we really should examine our brains yeah it's gotta be superior haven't they (laughs) (laughs) cool all right well thanks uh thanks so much Annalise it's been a great chat I've really enjoyed it um You've I'd asked like... such lovely questions. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been, um, it's been a real delight. Everything hoped it would be. Um, I want to wrap up. Uh, if you could make a change to the world, you developed a superpower to help visually impaired people like us. What, 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 what would it be? What would, you, what would you change? And you can well... be as sort of practical and realistic as you like, or if you want mm. to sort of be completely utopian, equally you can. Okay. Well, if I'm going to be a good, proper, disabled activist person then I would adhere to the social model of disability and I would say well the problem is society 
and not me mm -hmm. uh, because I'm perfectly fine. And so I would change people and make it that when they say that thing there at you, a big red flashing light descends <laughs> on them and they get like pied in the face. Okay. Not but but go maybe not the it. first time they say there. Like if, okay. they, if you say, where's that thing? And they say there, that's fine. A moderate electric shock to begin with. Yeah. But then yeah. if they say there at you repeatedly in an increasingly loud and angry uh -huh. voice, then they get pied. Okay. I like that. Yeah, I'm on board with that totally. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and just finally, I like to get a recommendation. If you, is there a, and you can't choose your own work because we've, 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 discuss all of those so is, is there a tv show or a book or a film is there uh, something you've watched in the past maybe couple of years that's really stood out as, as exceptional that you'd like to recommend oh god i'm just going to tell you what i've really enjoyed and over that's christmas the... yeah no go on that's the point yeah and that's, that's fine. the point okay yeah. <laughs> this is low brow. it doesn't need to be yeah. uh, <laughs> and yeah. this is me like personally my life so yeah no help to anyone else but my kids are 13 and 9, and um, we watched a reality show called The Traitors together. And it was the first thing that I found that my little boy and my older girl and me all loved with equal passion and fervor. We all just absolutely adored it. So um, that was a really joyful experience. So, yeah, I would recommend The Traitors. It's okay. really fun. I was one of the few people I think didn't watch it, but I did hear lots of people were raving about it. So yeah, I, yeah, it was evidently brilliant. And you're, you're saying that confirms it. Um, it won't tax your brain. No, okay. okay. But you'll enjoy it. Thanks again, Annalise. So really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to be number two on your list. Well, how about that? What a wonderful guest. If you enjoyed that half as much as I did, please give us a follow on your preferred podcast platform. Share the episode with your friends, give us a rating and maybe even leave a review. It just makes the podcast easier for other people to find. There are links to all the shows we talk about, Annalisa's great work, in the show notes, so you can find them all there. And of course, Jack Thorne's game-changing McTaggart lecture as well. And details of where you can follow Annalisa and keep tabs on her work, because she's got some really exciting stuff coming up. That just leaves me to say thanks to Anton Thompson-McCormick for production help. We'll be back soon with episode three. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.